up, everyone? Welcome to another edition of Tuesday Talks. I'm Ryan Shepard. I'm hosting today. Uh, it's great to see you all. Uh, for those in the United States, happy Black History Month. Uh, we're celebrating today and always. Um, we have another exciting Tuesday Talk lined up for you. Um, I always start by giving a bit of context for our conversations and for our mission at the Innovation Hub. So let's jump right into it. The CARE Atlanta Global Innovation Hub convenes people and organizations dedicated to defeating poverty by achieving social justice and equity everywhere. The Innovation Hub creates the space, programs, and support systems to connect leaders with global practitioners in hopes of solving the world's most pressing problems. Tuesday Talks was created to build bridges. We hope that each week our participants leave with the deeper understanding of the topics we discuss and feel more clear about how they can contribute to solutions in their personal journey. At the Innovation Hub, we believe in the leadership of women, and we especially look to highlight expertise from Black, Indigenous, and communities of color. We're committed to centering and uplifting all justice-centered voices in our conversations and programming. And today we're gonna to talk about reproductive justice. And for the sake of this conversation, we frame this as reproductive justice linking reproductive rights with the social, political, and economical inequalities that impact women's ability to access reproductive health care services. Core components of reproductive justice include equal access to affordable contraceptive, comprehensive sex education, freedom from sexual violence. As the attacks on reproductive rights and justice continue all around the world, it's important for us that we build and strengthen our communities and that we support those who are fighting for unrestricted access to comprehensive reproductive health care. So in today's conversation, we'll give space to a group of amazing women who are continuing to keep that fight alive and who are at the forefront of women's rights. So let me introduce you to our awesome panel today. First, I want you to, uh, first I want you to meet Maria Tahir. Maria has worked in gender-based violence for over a decade in the areas of teaching, research, policy, program development, and direct service. In 2015, she co-founded Say Yo, an award-winning transnational organization with the mission to empower Asian and other communities to end female genital cutting. Maria, welcome. Thank you for being with us today. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Absolutely. Uh, next, I want you to meet Pari Chaudhary. Pari is passionate about shifting power to under-resourced populations. Pari has worked in the arena of sexual and reproductive health and rights for over 10 years. Recently, she established a formal reproductive justice commission with the city of Atlanta, intended to ensure that reproductive and human rights of Georgians are protected. In her current role at CARE, she lends technical expertise to six health equity programs. Pari, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Ryan. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Next, I want you all to meet uh, Rachel Lorenzo. Rachel is a queer parent of two and lives in Albuquerque, New Mexico. They were born in Las Cruces, New Mexico to young parents and were raised on their father's ancestral land in Laguna, New Mexico. Currently, Rachel manages fundraising for Indigenous Women Rising, but also serves as Assistant Commissioner of Cultural Resources at the New Mexico State Land Office. Rachel, welcome to Tuesday Talks. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, so we wanna start by learning a little bit more about each of our speakers. Uh, we ask you to tell us a little bit about what communities that you call home and what communities you're advocating for through your work. Let's hear first from Rachel, then Pari, then Marie. Thank you for that. Um, so just a little bit of backstory on Indigenous Women Rising. Um, because of my own experience with uh, reproductive health, um, specifically pregnancy loss and abortion care, I found that there wasn't any space for Indigenous people um, for us to use our own words because we don't grow up hearing like the social justice terms or the buzzwords that we hear or see on social media. And so I just wanted to create a space where um, we could share our own experiences as Indigenous people, um, whether or not we grew up in tradition. And so that's what Indigenous Women Rising is, is um, uh, a space for indigenous people to um, get 
unbiased, non-judgmental, um, culturally sensitive sex education and um, funding for the different kinds of healthcare, uh, reproductive healthcare needs that they may have. Um, and we have recently expanded to include helping um, black pregnant people, undocumented pregnant people, and young people 18 and under of any ethnicity um, within our funding structure. So I'm really proud of how much we've grown and the trust that um, donors and funders have in us to, to be able to help these communities because we see that because in the US um, we are on stolen land and that many people have experiences or, or come from lineages where they didn't choose to come here or because of imperialism or um, American exceptionalism were forced to flee their homelands for whatever reason and they, they came here. And so the least that we can do is um, support them when they're making decisions about their reproductive health. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for being with us. We're excited to learn from you and be in community with you today. Ari, what about you? What communities do you call home? What communities are you advocating for through your work? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. Um, well, I think the communities that I call home, I start with I'm a woman. Um, I'm an immigrant. I'm ethnically South Asian. I'm not American. And um, I think there's multiple communities that I find uh, space within, but uh, I think community is ultimately just where you're comfortable. And so what I'm hoping to do is speak for, use my position of privilege to speak for communities of color, um, under-resourced communities and adolescents that might not have the kind of power in special politically advocacy spaces. Um, and that's what I was doing when I was setting up the Reproductive Justice Commission with the state of Atlanta that you mentioned in my intro. Now I'll pass it on to Maria. Excellent. Yeah, over to you, Maria. Same question. What communities do you call home? Who are you advocating for? Yeah. Um, hi. So it's actually Maria. Um, but in terms of the communities I come from and call home, um, I'm also South Asian, but I was born in the U.S. So I definitely hold a dual identity of considering myself American, but also um, a child of immigrants and um, also born into a Muslim community as well. And sort of also just kind of lived all over the country. So feel like a very much somebody who has a very diverse background in that sense. But in terms of the work that I do too, I have been working in gender-based violence, um, as you mentioned, for over 10 years. And really, and I'll talk a little bit more about this, um, I started working in domestic violence, sexual assault, but really recognized the need to work in the issue of female genital cutting, or some people know it as female genital mutilation, because it was something that was impacting the community that I grew up in. And it was something that wasn't really recognized as happening to those from South Asian backgrounds or from Asian backgrounds backgrounds in general too. And so um, SEO and the organization that I co-founded really started out of this sense of our voices weren't being heard, similar to what Rachel was also talking about, um, and really recognizing a needing space for where we could talk about these issues and make them public and um, really finding that storytelling to be able to bring community together in that way was a very powerful thing to do. So that's a little bit about me and what we're doing. In glad to be here and be able to talk more. Awesome. And yeah, thank you for being with us. And my apologies for the mispronunciation. I have to learn to read my own notes better. So I got it, uh, Martin. Thank, <laughs> nice. you. thank you. Thank um, so, you. So let's get into uh, into the topic, into the discussion today. And so Pari, um, I want to ask you to kind of frame up for us very broadly um, what we mean when we talk about reproductive justice, um, how to care approach that work um, and specifically give us some sense of um, communities that are especially impacted um, by the challenges we face around access to reproductive rights and reproductive justice. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so before I define it, let me just say that um, the reproductive justice is a movement that belongs to Black women and women of color. Um, they're the originators of the movement and so are the ones who defined exactly what it might look like. Um, they're a few different definitions that sort of help with a holistic understanding of it. So let me start with the most encompassing one, which is the legal definition of reproductive justice, which is, as Ryan alluded to in his introduction, is the complete physical, mental, 
spiritual, political, social, and economic well-being of women and girls based on the full achievement and protection of women's human rights. Um, and I think that, you know, that definition was created at a time before we were sort of speaking with open arms about the multiple genders that exist that are that can have reproductive health care. So um, I think that, you know, that's one thing to think about is that it's, it's specific, the definition itself is specific to women, but it should include all folks um, of reproductive age and decision making. Um, but at the core of reproductive justice, are three beliefs. So if the definition seems too broad, the way to look at it is one is the belief that everyone should have the right to have children, the right to not have children, and the right to nurture the children that you may have in a safe and healthy environment. So it's those three things ultimately. And because uh, reproductive justice is often conflated with the idea of reproductive health and reproductive rights, um, I wanna first establish for us the difference between the three things. Reproductive health deals with service delivery. Reproductive rights addresses legal issues and protections. And reproductive justice focuses on social movement building. So if you're ever confused about how to, how the interactions between those three things, um, think back to that definition and it might be useful. Um, I think the reason why the reproductive justice framing and framework is so important to us and in the communities that it affects is because it really speaks to the ability of how any one person can determine their own reproductive destiny and how those that decision is not just an individual decision, but it's linked to conditions that exist within a community. And those conditions are affecting this individual choice and access. And the conditions are reflecting you know, the social realities that exist in our societies and in governments where we're talking about inequality and inequality of opportunities in terms of access or demand for privacy or respect, confidentiality, those sort of things. And so the reason why I think talking about reproductive justice is so important and extending it beyond rights and healthcare is important is because it really sort of highlights this crucial need for the social supports that are necessary in order for a, someone's individual reproductive health decisions to be actualized and realized. And it really highlights obligations from you know, civil society, from NGOs like CARE, from governments to be able to really create the social conditions of safety, affordability, and accessibility for um, people and women to be able to actualize their human and their reproductive rights. So I think that that's um, sort of the framing that we should embark on this conversation with. And I'm happy to take questions at any time in the chat box if folks are confused about that definition at all. Yes. Uh, so thank you. That was absolutely perfect. And thank you for um, kind of teasing out the nuances and the different terms and giving us a great foundation to build upon for, for the conversation. Um, Rachel, you mentioned something in your introduction about how your kind of personal identities, personal lived experiences impact the work that you do in Native and Indigenous communities. I wonder if you could talk a bit about the relationship uh, that Native communities have to this kind of framework of reproductive justice, and how are you creating uh, more space for an equitable uh, ecosystem uh, for those? Thank you for that. Um, when, when I was growing up, um, Talking about even breastfeeding um, was something very taboo. And I remember my dad telling me when I was nursing my daughter to cover up because my uncles were coming over. And that's not fair. Like no um, breast or chest feeding parent should have to be told to, to um, make themselves small um, to be able to take care of their, of their children. And that is another lived experience that I found really resonated with my cousins, with other indigenous communities. And Pari is absolutely right about the reproductive justice framework and how it differs from reproductive health and reproductive rights. Um, IWR is specifically um, focusing on reproductive justice because we realize through lived experiences that no matter what our health needs are, and because so many of our reservations are very rural, they are food deserts, they are actual deserts with um, very little running water and without um, 
a lot of uh, institutionalized structural support systems that we've realized we cannot rely on the government to provide those. And so um, the term mutual aid is pretty new to me, um, but it's what we've been doing in communities since forever. Um, whether it was helping each other have a baby or terminate a pregnancy or um, helping uh, gather food or, or whatever, or haul water together, like those are the, the things we've done since time immemorial to literally survive. And now we're still, we're continuing that um, because in relation to a lot of, a lot of the barriers, um, a lot of times in our own communities, we see our men, especially cisgender heterosexual men, many of whom are in tribal leadership, um, who take on this very patriarchal role that many times is not traditional. And, you know, according to our stories and our songs, um, in a lot of our traditions that women, trans folks, queer folks, um, and the traditional terms for those folks held a lot of um, political and social power that we don't have right now within our own communities. So when it comes to reproductive justice, one of the unique barriers that we have in our communities is trying to shift to do culture shift and trying to get our own men, millennial men, Gen Zers, um, to understand that the reproductive health needs of their community is very important. And we'll, be, we'll only be able to get that through um, social and cultural changes. And for us, we see that happening through the reproductive justice route. Um, so unfortunately, a lot of the barriers that we do come across um, just to have basic needs met um, can come from our own tribal governments. And so being able to help our clientele navigate not just insurance systems and the laws in their own state, whether they're a public law 280 state or not, um, and their own tribal governments is, uh, it can be a challenge. Yeah, and thank you for the, the work that you all are leading specifically in that space. Um, Maria, both, uh, both Pari and Rachel kind of made mention of the, the physical safety, the physical wellness piece of reproductive justice. And uh, we understand that that's a priority of the work that you do. And we understand this connection to overall well-being and safety. I'd love for you to share with us a bit about specifically gender-based violence and the work that you all are leading and some of the efforts that you're making to include that as a comprehensive part of reproductive Sure, um, I'm happy to talk about that. And just uh, so everyone is clear and aware of, in case you were not familiar with female genital mutilation or cutting is, that is one form of gender-based violence and what we focus on a lot more too. But um, so female genital mutilation or cutting or FGMC or FGC for short, it comprises all procedures that involve partial or total removal of the external female genitalia or other injury um, to the female genital organs for non-medical reasons. And it is recognized internationally as a human rights violation and an extreme form of violence against women and girls. Um, it is something that is usually performed between birth and puberty, although we do hear it happening on adult women as well too. But it is a unique form of gender-based violence and something that's not really recognized and that there is, um, I think in general, when you think about gender-based violence and with all of the movement that happened with the Me Too movement too, it is also the same here where this is something that has been very much silenced and there's a lot of shame and stigma around it. Um, it is a unique form of gender-based violence and that oftentimes within communities where it's happening, women are continuing on to, on to women themselves. So that's how it's often passed generation after generation, but it's often clouded in this culture of silence as well too. And so there are these notions of being brought up that this is a private woman's issue or it's not supposed to be talked about too. So it becomes um, a social norm and um, it's justified in all sorts of ways from the idea that a woman needs to be sexually controlled um, from reasons of uh, women are not supposed to be promiscuous or supposed to remain chaste. To ironically, I've also heard reasons that this increases sexuality too, to idea false notions of health 
Um, there, there are no health benefits to this, but there are justifications given sometimes that this leads to more aesthetics um, and pleasing um, kind of genitalia to the idea that this is a social standing practice or it, it's more acceptable for marriage if a girl undergoes this too. And it's important to kind of recognize all of these other um, components leading to how it's been justified because that does have play a part on a woman's reproductive um, system and their their health overall too. It is something that can have lifelong consequences. It can have short-term, long-term. It has both mental health, um, psychological as well too. But thinking about all that and just kind of going back to this idea that it's a social norm and because there's often shame and silence associated with this, um, it's really important when you're looking at how to create behavior change that you look to how do you create a critical mass of voices speaking up against this. And that's really something that SEO strives to do too in all of our work is how do we create spaces, whether that means um, safe spaces where you can share your story. We have digital storytelling workshops that we host where communities come together, advocates come together to talk about this form community with each other, but then they're able to kind of get agency over their story and they create these advocacy tools. We have other safe um, kind of programming too, whether it's just writing your story out in a blog or if it's um, doing trainings for healthcare providers, other frontline professionals, social workers, those who might come in contact with women who've undergone this or girls who might be at risk of this too. Um, I, I want to also just kind of mention that FGMC is something that people don't recognize how global it is. Uh, oftentimes, those who are have some sort of familiarity with it hear that it's happening in Africa or in remote places in Africa, and that does occur there. But it actually is much wider than just a country that uh, just uh, one continent. It is something that there was a report that came out a couple of years ago that shows it's actually happening in 92 countries around the world, including the United States. Um, the CDC showed that is something that half a million women and girls have undergone it here. But again, there's kind of this misconception around who it happens to, and there is this inherent racism that it only happens to black and brown communities or immigrants over there um, without recognizing that it actually does happen here. It happens to all backgrounds. This includes white communities. Um, this also, there's this history in the US that's been forgotten that up until the 1960s, sometimes in the 70s, clerodectomies were regularly performed on women to treat uh, hysteria, lesbianism, or mental illness. And health insurance actually covered this too. So there is a long history to this in terms of this kind of control over women's reproductive um, organs that just kind of has been somewhat forgotten in certain areas, but also kind of othered in this idea that um, only black and brown communities under go this. But that's another reason why we need to break silence and we really emphasize this idea of social more change and voices being um, shed or voices being allowed to talk about their experiences. And then I just want to quickly end by saying that one thing we're really doing a lot of work in and say other than our storytelling and really bringing communities together to talk about this is we're starting a project with um, there has been more awareness and federal funding coming out through the U.S. Department of justice. And so we're starting a project to connect with other gender-based violence organizations, domestic violence organizations, to kind of help provide training on this issue so that we can increase capacity of services overall for all survivors of gender-based violence. And so that's a project we're really looking forward to rolling out in the next few years too. Yeah, thank you for, um, I think, educating us or sharing a kind of a comprehensive a view of, of the particular issue of female genital cutting and mutilation. I agree with your point that um, we tend to hear about that topic hyper local to a specific region of the world uh, when, real when in reality, uh, this is something that we, we need to be fighting everywhere. Um, so Pari, that brings me to a question that I'd love to get your engagement on. And this is kind of how we think of this, um, this work as kind of think global, act local, that tension that, uh, that exists. And in an organization like CARE in particular, active in so many different places, so many different contexts and settings, how do we try to find our North Star in advocating for um, you know, justice generally and living up to our principles and then translate that into ways that can be effective in hyper-local context or in different cultural settings? Yeah, so I think, let me start my response to this by maybe explaining how like, what role the United States plays in influencing other countries, right? Because we, 
the the consequence of being a global superpower and having the global currency of the world is that the United States policy, whether it's through about reproductive justice or about human rights violations or even COVID vaccine distribution, is massively influential on other countries. And so, you know, we're talking. You asked specifically about care, like a lot of CARES work, at least in terms of like the technical expertise gets held in the US and then gets translated for local context when the goal is ultimately to actually shift power into the localized settings. And so um, I think maybe I'll articulate that by first saying like there, are, there it is a, it's an ongoing challenge when you have the United States be the largest bilateral donor towards all women's reproductive health, maternal health, and child health around the world. Because um, when you have a, one government playing a role like that, the decisions that they make directly influence all local communities around the world, especially in the global south. Um, and so translating our programming into context that, you know, that is like sort of applicable and relevant to folks around the world requires not just the sort of passing on of expertise from here to there, but the very intentional and conscious inclusion and lifting up of those voices from program like inception to end essentially. And so um, one thing I'll say for in terms of like the reproductive justice piece has just been, you know, um, we, during the Trump administration, we had an expanded version of the global gag rule, which is um, the global gag rule is a policy that has been implemented during every Republican presidency that has said that no US uh, development funding can be used to support abortion related activities globally, um, which has never, I mean, US, US uh, government funds are never used to support advocacy for abortion or service delivery for abortion, even within the US, um, let alone outside. But the reason I'm bringing this up, even though it might seem a little bit tangential, is because it, I want to highlight um, this idea that you know we, we sort of develop things here and then export them without taking into account local context is because um, the expansion of the global gag rule essentially enforces US policy on countries that never voted for this US government. And that's important because it essentially, for example, like Care USA is protected by a constitutional right to freedom of speech. So Care USA can use our funding as we so please. But care country offices that are managed by our US office cannot because they are receiving American funding to do that. And so there's like an automatic silencing or at least a level of sort of bureaucracy and red tape and uh, carefulness that they have to exact on their programming when they should actually be able to sort of direct that programming for themselves. So um, what I'll say is that one of the things that we are attempting to do, at least within the health equity team at CARE, is really focus on this idea of localization and bringing power into spaces where it doesn't, may not currently exist. We're not perfect at doing that because ultimately we are still, you know, using bilateral or American funding to do so. But what we are attempting to do is have greater um, community engagement and stakeholder involvement in our program development. Um, and what I mean by that is, so we are currently running an adolescent sexual reproductive health program in Syria, which as I'm sure most of the folks on this call know has been experiencing a protracted crisis uh, for over 10 years and uh, is experiencing a lot of issues related to sexual violence, gender-based violence, increases in child marriage, violations towards reproductive health care access. And so what CARE is attempting to do is uh, create a framework whereby adolescents who are the intended recipients of this program are actually actively contributing to its design and evaluation through feedback mechanisms, um, through you know like leadership training that they are then able to sort of speak to their communities in, and especially lifting up the voices of young girls in those spaces. And so um, I don't know if I fully answered your question, Ryan, because it's a big one. Yeah. But I just wanted to say that you know I guess the crux of my response is that U.S. policy has an undeniable influence on other countries. Uh, U.S. dollars have an undeniable influence on other countries. And so what we need to be doing as an organization, as individuals, as activists in these spaces is um, really elevating the voices of the people who are affected by this and using our positions to sort of grant them more voice in those spaces.
Yes, thank you. Absolutely thoughtful um, answer. And it does help us to, uh, to grapple with kind of the, the bigger set of factors here. And for those of us in the US to think about the role that our institutions play in setting an agenda globally. Um, one of the things that you mentioned that I'll speak for myself, I firmly believe in this idea of self-determination. I think that's just like a, a very basic human right that folks um, should, should have access to. And uh, Rachel, some of the work that you all do um, is about storytelling. It's about working with uh, folks to be able to determine and to shape their own narratives, particularly leaning into their cultural identities or leaning into traditions. I wonder if you might share with us the approach that Indigenous Women Rising leans into and how might we learn from those approaches to do some of what Par is talking about, elevating and deferring to local voices as opposed to having you know, more of a top-down um, set of, of the agenda. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, sorry, I was writing the question down because I, I feel like uh, the last question you asked me, I didn't get to fully, or I, I was like so excited about it, I didn't fully answer it. Um, but what was mentioned earlier about um, local development of something and then the evaluation of it is so important and that's something that we have that we strive to do as well um so when it comes to to storytelling um and and using our own words um there is some political education that goes into it um, especially when we're talking to our clientele um about what rights they have in their states um, and not that we're necessarily policy experts uh, in their specific state, but we are able to give them a baseline and um, just kind of ask them while we're doing their intake, like, how does that make you feel? Like what, what's coming up for you? Um, because, you know, you're looking for a midwife or you're looking for abortion care or you're interested in trying this specific kind of contraception. And a lot of times um, the answer we get back is this pisses me off. The, like, I'm really angry about this, that I don't like, here's this thing I need. It's close by or the place where I could get it is close by, but why don't they have that? Um, and so we let them know, like, after your procedure after when you're ready come back to us and let us know like what your experience was and um what you think could be better so for example with our abortion fund and our midwifery fund um we have a feedback form and the clients can go in and anonymously give us give us as a fund their feedback about us but also about where they got care um and what their experience was, what they think could be better. And then we share that feedback with the provider. Um, and some incredible projects have come from that that are led by the people we've served like an abortion support group dedicated to just indigenous queer people and, and women um, who were like, it's pretty silent <laughs> on like, the beginning of it uh, no one wants to talk or, or share because there's like this stigma right um and so it's really important for these groups to have all kinds of of people who have very similar experiences and who are will, willing to speak up and that's why with our staff at iwr we have these personal experiences in um, trying to break through barriers with reproductive health and so it's up to us to um, to start that conversation, um, and then let them take take it from there. Um, and so we not only do the funding for um, for the reproductive health care, but we're also fundraising so that way we can funnel money to these now grassroots organizers who are organizing their own thing in their own community. Again, using their own words, using their own cultural norms. For example, we had this thing called snag bags because um, snagging is like um, like a colloquial term, I guess, for hooking up um, casually. And so these snag bags had instructions on how to put on a condom. Um, it had condoms in there. We put in some uh, internal condoms as well. 
and information on uh, unintended pregnancy and like the different options that people have. And these were a huge hit and we put them in Indian health service uh, paper uh, paper bags where they, the pharmacist put the prescriptions in them and no one would be the wiser. So um, yeah, just like tapping into those like local uh, vernacular and letting them just take control of of uh, what would work in their community. Because as a Pueblo and Apache person, what works in my Pueblo community doesn't work in my Apache community and vice versa. And so having that knowledge, um, it also informs that, you know, the Dakotas are a huge um, portion of who we serve. And the Sioux, people who come from Sioux tribes do not have the same way uh, or worldviews as us here in the Southwest. So we have to be very mindful of that as well. And that's why it's really important for, for us to just, if we have the money, we're going to just send it to them and, and provide um, capacity building support. Um, so again, they can tell their own stories. Yeah, I love that. And I, I think that comes through in, in our work at CARE and in so many different organizations that serve kind of a broad coalition of individuals and communities of finding ways to be uh, relevant and considerate of the unique aspects of, of each individual community or, or cultural um, identity. I think we can't underestimate the power of that and, and the power of people telling their stories and seeing themselves represented um, in ways that feel familiar. And so Maria, let's just keep kind of continue building on that trend. So in the work that you're doing in the US, how are you looking to um, use personal narratives or connect with um, community members to raise awareness about an issue that you uh, kind of shared with us? This is happening in the US. Maybe people don't realize that this is an issue here. How do we continue to elevate the voices and the stories um, to make policy changes and to, and to push for um, what, what we're looking to? Yeah, that's a great question. And um, storytelling is huge in that realm as well, too, particularly when you're thinking about policy. And uh, from my own experiences, I've been working in policy both locally. Um, I'm currently based in Massachusetts, so I've been working here in Massachusetts. I'm also working in Connecticut to try to pass state legislation. Um, and in Massachusetts, it took us seven years, but we did get a state law passed in August 2020. Um, that is a very comprehensive law that does make clear that FGMC is illegal. It also includes components of education and outreach and the need for education and outreach um, and has civil remedies for survivors if they choose to go that route too. Um, Connecticut is one of 10 states that does not have any law. So we're trying to pass a comprehensive law there too. But to kind of understand a little bit about the, the context and how we work to also support law. Storytelling is huge in that, um, in that we do need to have survivor stories. We need to have impacted community stories. And when I mean impacted too, also those who might not have been cut or undergone FGMC, but who come from those communities and might have felt that pressure or also that just that shame or stigma. It's quite often actually you that you'll hear people that haven't been cut pretend that they have or been told to pretend that they have because there is this kind of social standing or this idea that you have to be cut to follow the social norm. So it's really raising all of those conversations and making it the social norm not to undergo FGMC, making it okay to talk about this and really changing that behavior. And those stories are so powerful, particularly if you're seeing stories from a variety of communities in the US and our Voices project, our Voices End, digital, um, Voices End FGMC digital storytelling project is one of our most successful ones because I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but they, um, or we host these workshops where we bring together impacted communities. They get to bond, they, they in a sense break isolation, recognizing that there are other people that have experienced not the same thing, everybody's unique, but have similarities, have gone through certain difficulties and they're able to talk about it out loud, sometimes for the first time ever. And then they get a sense of agency over telling their story and um, create a one to two minute digital story. They get to write the script, share the story, they get to choose the imagery. And then sometimes, um, Media is really important to influence policy too, but sometimes when you are speaking with reporters, what you're trying to say might not come out or there's a soundbite that might be used and that's not exactly what the person who was sharing their story wanted to come across. So this way, you really have that control, that sense of choice in telling what your story is. And I know in Massachusetts, at least, those stories were so powerful and used. And uh, one of our state senators who was a bill sponsor 
he also acknowledged that those stories were key in finally getting it to pass in the last few years. But also at the federal level, um, it's kind of important to recognize this. There has been a lot of movement on FGMC and that has influenced the state laws too. And it's a very long story, but I'll try to like summarize it. But essentially um, uh, there was a law at the federal level passed in 1996 that made FGMC illegal. No one was ever charged under that law until 2017, I believe. And um, this was the first time anyone was ever charged. It was a doctor in Michigan who actually comes from the same religious ethnic community I grew up in too. Um, and when she was charged with performing FGMC on girls that came from other states to Michigan too. Um, that broke a lot of stereotypes around the fact that FGMC happens here, who it happens to, that it was an educated community, um, a different background, um, somebody born here, all of those kind of back, those stereotypes. That trial kind of went on for a while, but essentially what happened, uh, I think it was in 2018, was a district judge ruled that law unconstitutional. And not because he said that FGMC should be allowed. It was kind of a technical issue where he said the way Congress originally passed that law in 1996, they overreached their authority in passing it because it was connected to this commerce clause. All that to say, he also said that states should regulate um, this just like domestic violence, sexual assault is regulated, homicide is regulated at a state level, states should be regulating this. At that time, there were only 19 states that had any type of state law. Now we have 40 states that have some sort of state law. They're not all equal, not all comprehensive, which is another thing we need to work on to make sure that community education is very much part of um, anything that's making it illegal as well too. But that really set into motion this idea that we need to work in the states as well. Um, long story short there, there was a stronger federal law that came into place that had bipartisan support and passed in January, 2021. And so there is a federal law. It also now makes accountable certain departments and reporting what their prevention and support activities are around this issue. So they do need to report on that, um, which is another reason why we're starting to see some federal funding domestically around this as well too. Uh, but that policy advocates, survivor stories, all of that has been so essential in the last few years to getting to this place, to recognizing that this is an issue here, we need to address it here too. And it's been a very long journey to get that. And there's still a lot more to be done. But I mean, thinking about 10 years ago when it really wasn't really recognized at all, and it was so hard to find any type of prevention or support services, we've come a long way since then. Yeah, and I, I think it speaks to the tremendous progress that um, that comes from organizations like, like yours being active, being vocal around very specific issues and very specific causes. And so that brings me to a question that I'd love to throw out to all three of our speakers today. Um, we've talked quite a bit about kind of the history and many of the things that are happening today around the topic of reproductive justice. But I wonder from each of you, what are you feeling most optimistic about? Or as you look towards the future, what gives you a sense of, of possibility as we continue to march forward on this journey? Um, so let's hear from Rachel, Pari, and Maria in that order. I'm so sorry. Can you repeat your question? Yeah, no worries. Just want to get a sense from you of uh, kind of the future of this work. What gives you a sense of possibility? What are you most optimistic about? Um. I, I'm very excited about uh, the creation of my transition plan with some really great consultants. Uh, I've been doing reproductive health things for a long time. And truly, this movement belongs to the youth. And there is absolutely a place for our elders um, in this movement. Uh, but I'm, I'm just excited that after years um, of work, like here in New Mexico, we were part of uh, overturning a 1960s um, complete ban on abortion care here in the state of New Mexico. So no matter what happens with Roe v. Wade, um, people seeking care here in my state um, will continue to have care, um, unfettered access as they need it. Uh, so I'm, we've, I've been able to accomplish a lot of what I wanted to and get 
people interested. And so really it's the new staff that we're bringing on board who are just so excited and, and energetic and also the, the faith and the trust that um, partners at the state level and the, and the national level have placed in us to be one of the trusted um, groups, I guess, to provide um, to provide feedback or or insight um, because it's it's not often that we see indigenous people in these these kinds of spaces. Um, I mean, when people hear reproductive health or or whatever, a lot of times they hear Planned Parenthood or NARAL, and that's not who we are. We were just a couple of native like kids from the res who were like, I really need someone to help me learn how to breastfeed. Right. And now, um, people are, the, these conversations are, are getting out there more. And I'm just, I'm really excited about it. Cause at some point I'd like to rest. <laughs> What, yeah, what about you, Park? Um, yeah, it's a challenging question because I think especially in the United States right now, it's a little hard to find excitement or positivity um, depending based on what's going on. But what I'll say is that um, I think we, you know, we as a society are more organized and more vocal than we've ever been before. And I think that that in itself is a huge, huge accomplishment and also something to be really excited about that there are in fact a couple of indigenous kids from the res who are actually involved in these conversations now whose voices are being heard where there's spaces and platforms for you know folks of all types and kinds and backgrounds to be included in these conversations so it's not just senators or uh congress people who are you know making these decisions based on their limited views of the world um, because all of us have uh, biases and the fact that we are now able to access information and perspectives in a larger way than before is super exciting. Um, I think on a personal note, so not taking off my care hat for a, for a second, one of the things I am excited about is, so the Reproductive Justice Commission that I uh, helped establish in the city of Atlanta came actually as a result of the six-week ban on bodily autonomy that happened in 2019. Um, which is, which was the, uh, I guess the foundation for the laws that are currently being debated in Texas and Mississippi. So Georgia did it first, um, but I was really raging after that. And I think that one of my ways of coping was to sort of identify a way to potentially try and establish a safe haven of type for reproductive justice access and healthcare access in the city of Atlanta. So um, Maria, because it wasn't a state law, it only took seven months instead of seven years, um, but we were able to get that greenlit by the city of Atlanta, which was great. But what's even more exciting is that now, two, two and a half years later, that Reproductive Justice Commission is now advocating to the state legislature for um, more protections around reproductive health care access. Because, you know, Georgia has the highest rate of maternal mortality in the United States. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. Um, and so the, the two things are directly connected to each other. And so my hope is that regardless of where things go, that at least the elevation of the, you know, the voice and the opportunity for multiple people to participate is something that is worth being positive about. Um, yeah, Mario. Yeah, thank you. Um, I definitely want to echo that, uh, you know, what Rachel mentioned about the youth as well, too, and that I do feel very hopeful and excited about that. Particularly, I'm just sort of thinking about how we've seen in our own work over the year. And say was, uh, my organization is not that old. You know, it was founded in December 2015. So it's, it's about six, seven years old, if I'm doing math correctly. But um, just think sort of this like ripple effect that has happened over the years through this idea of sharing a story, one person kind of opening up and how that has really encouraged others to share stories or talk about these issues to become advocates. And I've seen that happen over the years too. And I've really seen how youth have become more and more involved as well. And the fact that um, Pari was mentioning people from all different diverse backgrounds are able to speak up and seeing that kind of movement, that does make me feel hopeful. 
it also brings other challenges sometimes you don't recognize. Um, we're seeing this counter backlash where we're seeing um, people all referred to as pro-FTC coming out and really justifying the continuation. But at the same time, the fact that it's actually coming at a public level, like you're discussing it versus behind the closed doors, I think is a step towards seeing that larger change that you want to. Um, but I do see much more attention. I see the youth coming more involved, these future leaders in this work, all of these social justice movements in reproductive health as well too. And that just brings, I think, um, a lot of hope for me and that we are seeing progress though it might be slow and I think social change is slower than a lot of people would like um seeing that kind of step-by-step -step process is really important and you can if you kind of look back to where we've been 50 years ago as well too yes uh I, I echo that I appreciate kind of the perspective that each of you bring especially when we think about the role that the youth play and how we continue to kind of push these movements forward. Um, we're, we're short on time at this point. We've learned so much. Thank you to each of our speakers for um, all of the knowledge and the insight that you've brought to the conversation today and for the amazing work that you're doing. And so as we close out, we always ask our speakers to share with us one thing that you're doing these days to create joy or something in your world that's bringing you joy. Um, so let's hear first from Pari, then Rachel, and we'll get our last word today from Maria. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. What a lovely question to close off of. Um, I might be a bit of a masochist because one of the things I'm doing to give me joy is I've actually created a TikTok account uh, to talk about reproductive health access. I don't know anything about TikTok, but because I believe in the power of youth, that's one thing I'm doing. And when I'm too busy scrolling through comments from trolls about reproductive health, I eat bread give me joy. So that's the second thing. <laughs> yeah. Yes, to the bread. Um, this is unconventional, whatever, but I am really loving hot rollers. So my grandmas were onto something and just the big hair and the curls. I don't know. There's something about it that is so powerful. Um, yesterday I posted on Instagram with my big curly hair, um, hair so big, it carries prayers to the creator. And I am just like fully invested in that. So, um, just that ritual of like doing my hair and my makeup is it just, it's been getting me through the panini um, and also uh, conchas, polvarrones, and um, caffeine throughout the day. I love it. Um, so I'll end it and say that I'm a potter. Um, so I do a lot of pottery and it's my therapy and I'm actually going to go do that later today too. But yeah, so I started doing pottery for like, I think it's been three years now, but I've become really obsessed and uh, started my little Instagram page and Etsy store too. But it's just something I go to that I can get away from everybody and play with some clay for a while and just kind of stop thinking about the world. And um, that is my self-care thing that I don't know what I'd do if I <laughs> didn't have it right now. Love it. Um, well, we appreciate each of you for being with us. Thank you for sharing uh, so many insightful pieces of information. And again, thank you for the work that you're doing. Those who are still on the call, if you're willing and able to turn your camera on, turn your microphone on, join me in giving a round of applause and appreciation to our amazing speakers today. Thank you all for being with us. That said, we will leave our chat open for a few more minutes while DJ Sofa takes us off with another amazing mix. Thank you all for being with us for another great edition of Tuesday Talks. We'll catch you soon. DJ Sofa. Over to you.